Thank you, Jesse and Ryan. Thank you, church. We, we've been traveling together for some time through Mark's gospel. And we've been on the road to Calvary with Jesus really since chapter 8 as he, he turns his eyes, fixes his eyes to getting to Jerusalem. And we're still on that road. And we've encountered some very uh, difficult truths, haven't we? Right? To follow Christ means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Him. Whoever wants to be greatest in the kingdom is missing the point because Jesus is the greatest. And so we need to be willing to surrender ourselves and to give our lives for the good of, of the church and ultimately for the, for the good of Christ and the progress of the gospel in the world. The one who seeks to save his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for Christ's sake and the gospel's sake will gain it. We've, we've been hearing these truths week after week after week, and then we get to chapter 10, and the first point of application for what this looks like in the life of a Christian comes in marriage. You want to know what it looks like to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus? Then get married. Yeah. And stick it out and stay the course and fight for truth and life and godliness and let God use your spouse to refine you and make you more like Him over a lifetime of marriage. It's no accident that Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12 comes after the call to discipleship. Because one of the greatest places that you can prove that you're really following Jesus is within a healthy godly marriage. So let's, let's take a look together at what Mark says. And really what Jesus says through Mark's recording of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12. Would you hear now the word of God? Getting up. He, and that means Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, and they did what Pharisees did. They tested him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Verse 9 is the takeaway, by the way. Because of everything I just told you, do verse 9. What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. I believe the King James there, I love its language. Let no man put it asunder. Let no man take it down. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. <coughs> Would you, uh, would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, I need your help this morning to communicate your truth in a way that is clear, in a way that is accurate, and yet in a way that ultimately we are reminded of your great grace and your love for us. Help me, Jesus. Help us, Jesus, to hear from heaven 
this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. This is perhaps the most fearful sermon I've preached at North Roanoke to date. And that includes the trial sermon where you had to decide if you were to call me or not. It's a, it's a tough topic. The discussion of marriage is set within Mark's gospel and it's set within the context of the cost of discipleship and the priority of faithfulness to Christ even in the midst of trials and hardships and adversities. And the reason that marriage comes now is because one of the greatest training grounds for overcoming trial and adversity and hardship is marriage. You want to learn what it's like to follow Jesus? Then, then stay married and persevere. You see, in Jesus' day, like in our day, divorce was relatively easy. And the Pharisees and the rabbis, they wanted to keep it that way. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus in verse 2 and they're testing him. The word is, it's the same word used of Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. They're trying to take him down. They're trying to sabotage him. They're trying to rob him of the opportunity to save the very people that are asking them the questions. And they want to do it by forcing him to decide between the heart of God for marriage and offending the people that he's come to serve. And i got to be honest with you, as I've prepared this message, I've kind of felt that pressure. Do, do I teach what God and his heart is saying about marriage and risk offending a bunch of people who have unfortunately, they, they, they're very familiar with divorce. And, and I want you to hear my heart this morning. My heart is, is to teach the truth of Christ in a way that we don't neglect the grace of Christ. So I pray you'll bear with me as I do my best to, to tell you what God has said in this text. But notice what the Pharisees are doing. They're picking a topic that it impacts as many people as possible and which has the greatest possibility of allowing people's emotions to crowd out their ability to hear and receive and accept God's truth. You see what I'm saying? They pick a fight on the thing that's easiest to divide people over because they want to sabotage Jesus and his ministry and separate him from the very people, many of whom are divorced. He wants to separate them, him from the saving plan that he's come to, to offer to them. So, so don't hear me say this morning that, that God doesn't love people who've been through a divorce, he, that he doesn't have grace for people who've been through a divorce. But the Pharisees are trying to sabotage Jesus and not much has changed. Because in the era of no fault, put for any reason, divorces, our culture says this. Marriage is not for as long as both shall live, but only for as long as we both feel like loving. And this is clearly not what Jesus thinks about marriage. And it is what makes this sermon particularly challenging this morning. Danny Aiken, who's written a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, put it this way. Few issues have caused me more grief soul-searching and study than what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. And while I would like to avoid this sermon and just skip over to verse 13 because it talks about kids and that's a whole lot easier to talk about, I'm not going to do it because this is the Word of God. And you can't follow Jesus and ignore His Word, even on the hard things. And I'm not going to do it because there's probably some marriages in a room this big this morning that need to hear it. There's a group of students and children upstairs who need a church that upholds and values what God says about marriage.
We've got to preach this text because we cannot we can't follow Jesus on the one hand while we're ignoring him on the other. So I want to begin in this way, church. Let's not fall into the Pharisees' trap this morning. Let's not let our past or our particular situation cause us to fail to hear what Jesus says. Because a mark of maturity in the Christian life is the ability to let God's truth inform our heads and our hearts even when we have a past. Even when we have feelings and failures and hurts that make it hard to listen to God's truth, a mature Christian says, I'm going to listen to Him anyway because He's God. We cannot let our experience in the past be our truth. Rather, we must let God's truth be our truth. Are we here this morning? Is this on? Alright. So what does Jesus want us to know about marriage this morning? To follow Christ in marriage, there's three things I think we see in this text. First, we must not confuse the reality of divorce with God's desire for marriage. Just because a marriage ends in divorce doesn't mean that God wanted it to end in divorce. Secondly, we must understand God's design for marriage. And finally, we must remain committed to our spouse even though especially when it is challenging. Now, I do want to, to say something because it's 2018 and it's important to be said. Uh, we're on Facebook Live this morning. Use networks, monitor evangelical churches and try to make them look crazy all the time. Now, here's what I want you to know. If you're in a situation where you are physically uh, at risk by staying there, then you need to get help. You need to let your pastor know. And I can point you in the direction of Working toward a separation, not to say, hey, I want to give up on my marriage and I don't care about my husband anymore. I don't care about my wife anymore and I want my marriage not to succeed. That's not what you're saying, but we got to get you to a place of safety, right? And then be, and then be able to work back toward what God would want for your marriage. So if you're in a situation that, that is endangering you or your children, then, then Christ is not saying to, to continue to put yourself in danger. Are, are we clear? Okay. Having said that, we must not confuse the reality of divorce with God's desire for marriage. It's no accident that a discussion of marriage immediately follows Jesus' teaching about the trials of following Him. Marriage comes with all sorts of adversity and difficulty, performance issues, job losses, in-law difficulties, or maybe you call them outlaws, hormonal changes, the number of children that you're going to have, whose career are we actually chasing? Which side of the bed do I sleep on? Who's going to take out the trash? Who's going to vacuum the house? How much money are we going to spend on groceries and makeup and cars and everything else presents an opportunity for there to be a challenge along the way? But trials are not a reason to bail. They are an opportunity to become more like Jesus. That was good. I'm going to say that again. Trials are not the opportunity to bail. They are the opportunity to become more like Jesus. But in many marriages, seasons come along when bailing seems to us to be easier. And it is in those seasons that we need to hear sermons like this one. It's not in those seasons that we need to forget the purpose of marriage. But rather we need to apply ourselves to what God is doing in marriage. You see, the Pharisees are doing what some couples this morning are no doubt probably doing, if you're honest. 
You've begun to think, how can I justify divorce? And you stopped asking, what does God want for my marriage? You see, the Pharisees lead with the wrong question. They start off with, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? But what they should be asking is, what does God want out of marriage? They want to talk about divorce, but Jesus wants to talk about marriage. God's intent for marriage cannot be determined from a text about divorce. It's like, it's like this. Edward says, you don't learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for a crash landing. But Jesus goes along with the Pharisees for a few verses. In verse 3, he says, well, you tell me what did Moses command? And he's referring back to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. What did Moses say about divorce? And then in verse 4, the Pharisees go, well, Moses permitted divorce. He didn't actually command it, which is important, right? The Bible nowhere commands, requires, or encourages divorce. You can't find the Bible ever encouraging divorce. As Edwards writes in Deuteronomy 24, of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, its purpose was not to encourage divorce, but to preserve an equitable ruling in the unfortunate event of a divorce. In other words, if a man divorced his wife, which is not what God desired, he put some safeguards around that for the woman in the patriarchal society to be guarded. And, and here's what it required, that a man had to put his reasons in writing. And if he divorced his wife... He could never go back to her. And thirdly, it safeguarded the rights of the woman by giving her the right to remarry. If he just put her out, well, she could remarry. Divorce does not exist, church, because Moses permitted it. It exists because the state of the human heart is hard, verse 5. Why does divorce exist? Because human hearts are not soft and supple and receptive to the Spirit of God. The word for heart is the Greek word sclerosis. You hear in that uh, arteriosclerosis, right? The disease of the arteries where the arteries harden and then the heart shuts down because the blood can't flow properly. What did is divorce? Divorce is a disease that ends marriages. Where one or both individuals who are married have hearts that are not softened by the presence of God in their lives. Would to God that the church thought of divorce not as an opportunity to get out of marriage, but as a disease to be avoided. You see, Christ has come and sent His Spirit, and we do not have to surrender to divorce when trials come and times get tough, because Christ gives us soft hearts. God does not want us to give in to hard-heartedness, but He wants to let us, he, excuse me, He wants us to let Him make our marriage something that would sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. In every circumstance. Aren't you glad. That when Jesus knew he was on the way to the cross. That he didn't say you know what time out I need a divorce. What offense could take place in your marriage that's greater than the offense that we nailed Jesus to the cross with our sin. Find an offense that's greater than that. And yet Jesus knew we would commit adultery against Him. He knew we would worship other gods. He knew we would be selfish and we would be dead in our trespasses and sins. And that we would be enemies of God. And yet He went to the cross to inaugurate through His own blood a marriage and a union between Christ and His church, which was formerly His enemy. You still here this morning? Alright, we're just getting started. Tim Keller says it well in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. In any relationship, there's going to be frightening spells. 
Anybody been through a frightening spell in marriage, you don't have to raise your hand. But in a church this big, in a congregation this big, it's probably every one of us that's been married. In any relationship, there's going to be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you've got to remember the essence of marriage is covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. You didn't promise just to love your wife or your husband on, the, on your wedding day. You promised you would love them forever till death do us part. So what do you do when this happens? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender and sympathetic and eager to please, but in your actions you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful, and beg Christ to help you do that. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep, and you will become more constant in your feelings. That's what can happen if you decide to love. Church, we've been sold a bill of goods that divorce is the way to escape, it's the way to get out. Did you know that troubled marriages today, if they stick it out five years from now, 73% of marriages that are troubled today, if they hang in there and they go to counseling and they talk it out and they work trusting that Christ will honor their commitment, 73% of those end up being healthy marriages five years since when both spouses are feeling freedom and loving being married together. But those that divorce, guess what happens? The divorce rate in the next marriage is exponentially higher than that. You want to be happy in marriage? Stay in there and fight. Decide to love. Decide to love. This means that loving your spouse as Christ loved you. This means loving your spouse as Christ loved you, excuse me, rather than rationalizing justifications for divorce. Rather than playing games, mental games about who's at fault when times get tough. So the first thing we have to do, church, is we've got to resolve that we will not allow the reality of divorce to lead us to begin imagining that our scenario is the one scenario in which God does the desire divorce. That's, that's what the Pharisees did. Secondly, we must understand God's design for marriage. So if we're not supposed to get our view of marriage by accepting the reality of divorce, then, then how do we determine what marriage is and what it should look like? Do you see what Jesus does in verse 6? He doesn't take them back to Deuteronomy. He takes them back to Genesis, to the beginning. It is God's good design from the beginning of creation, verse 6, that should determine how we think about marriage. Church, the implications of this phrase are massive from the beginning. If you want to know how to think about marriage, you've got to go back to the garden. You've got to go back to Adam and Eve. And in Christ, the second Adam, the new creation is possible for us. We can live the garden life afresh because of what Jesus has done. In Jesus, a new day has come. We no longer have to be defined by our hard-heartedness. In Jesus, we're given God's power to be restored to the purposes that He had for us from the beginning of creation. I want to tease this out for you a minute, church. In, in marriage counseling, I always take couples back to the garden and I tell them to do a mental experience, a mental experiment, a thought experiment. What must it have been like to be Adam and Eve in the garden and to walk with Jesus in the cool of day before they ever sinned? And man, you see... All of a sudden, no matter what problems or issues that they're dealing with, their, their, their bodies relax and their smile comes over their face. And the, you know what the guy's thinking about. Yeah. Uh, 
But, but they begin to imagine this garden life that was, that was free of turmoil and trouble. And, and yes, we live in a fallen, broken world. But God desires for the Christian marriage to have an element of the garden life about it. Where we have a right relationship with ourselves. We don't go to the mirror and say, I'm, I'm not worthy, I'm ugly, I'm terrible, I messed this up. We go to the mirror and say, I've been adopted and redeemed in Christ. And I can contribute to this marriage because Christ has made me new in Him. And then we have a right relationship with our spouse. And then we have a right, right relationship with God. And we have a right relationship with creation. And God desires this Rightness in our marriage to be there and present through the presence of His Holy Spirit. And when that happens, He restores us to His purposes for creation. Why did God make Adam and Eve? What did He tell them to do? Make babies. North Roanoke Baptist Church, I, I want our marriages that are of childbearing years not to listen to the world. I want you to listen to the gospel. And the gospel is have as many children as you can possibly have and raise them up to be little champions for King Jesus. Have children. That's what the Bible says. Because he's taking you back to creation and that's what marriage was made for. Secondly, have dominion. Take dominion. What does it mean to take dominion? It means don't be a knucklehead. Don't be a deadbeat dad. Don't be lazy. Take dominion means the resources that God has given you in the world. Make use of them. Create value. Extract value from them. Build businesses and homes and be entrepreneurial and do stuff. Why? Just for you so you can have a bunch of cars and houses and land? No. But so that you can extend the garden, if you will, further so that more people can know the great grace of God in their life. So go do stuff for Jesus. Go, go be an entrepreneur. Go take that risk. Go build that business. And go have a bunch of children. And then when God gives the increase, be a blessing and conduit in God's church to extend the sake of, uh, extend rather, the knowledge of the name of Jesus to more and more people. That was, that was not in the notes. But, but it's true. That's, that's what God wants to do in your marriage. We don't have to give in, church, to selfish pressures. That emerge in our hearts while we're toiling in the wilderness, even though the world is not like it one day will be. The Spirit of God is at work in the lives of His people, transforming us from the inside out. Jesus gives us the ability to pursue the garden life in the here and now, even in the middle of a dry, broken, and barren wilderness. So students, I want to talk to you for a second this morning. You say, I'm not married. What does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Because the questions that people ask about polygamy or divorce in the Bible. Did you ever get that question in a class? Well, what about the Bible? Abraham had multiple wives. Why can't I? You got to answer them. Do what? Go on, Parker. What you got? All right. That's fantastic. The questions that people ask about polygamy or divorce in the Bible can be answered the way that Jesus answers the Pharisees. How does he answer the Pharisees? Here, here's my interpretation of what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Don't you interpret, excuse me, don't you justify a sinful desire for multiple partners or a desire to get out of your marriage by using the parts of the Bible that show what happened as a result of sin. 
If you want to know how someone who's been freed from sin should think and live about within marriage, then go back to the beginning. Go to the garden before the fall. And when we pursue God's design for marriage with a holy passion for Christ's glory and full confidence that He will finish the work that He's begun in us, that's when marriage becomes a wonderful and refining instrument of God's hands in our lives. Did you know God will use your spouse to make you more like Jesus? There's nothing like a good and godly wife who's patient and gentle to help you see some flaws along the way. Trust me. God's desire for marriage is that it would be a picture of the radical union and relationship of Christ and the church as bride. And God accomplishes His desire for marriage by way of His design for marriage. Marriage is not some abstract concept that CNN made up. It's not something that the world made up. It's something that God made in the beginning. And it will not work unless it's worked in the way that God put it together. In other words, in marriage, God permanently puts together a man biologically defined, and I hate to have to be able to qualify that today, but you can't self-identify something that you aren't and then call it a marriage. In marriage, God permanently puts together a male biologically defined and a female biologically defined. Are we on the same page? Okay. Man and woman are not optional to marriage. You've got to have one of each. As Edwards writes, maleness and femaleness are rooted in the creative will of God and they're foundational for marriage. So let me, let me illustrate this morning. Do you remember 11th grade chemistry class? And do you remember compounds that come together? Water, right? Like the molecule of water. What is it? It's H2O. Well, what happens if you're like, well, I want to have water with just three H's. I'm just, going to take, I'm just going to take out the oxygen and just put another H in here. Do you have water anymore? No. Same thing with marriage. If you have a man and a woman, you're like, I'm just going to trade out a man and put a woman in here. You don't have marriage anymore. The elements in God's marriage compound are one man and one woman for life, no matter what any news network, government, or anybody else says. It's not a marriage. No more than H3 is water. When one man and one woman marry, they become something new. They come together in a way that only a man and a woman were built to come together. They become one flesh, verse 8. A new creation. This is a picture of what happens to us when we trust in Jesus. That we become radically united with Him in a way that His atoning death on the cross somehow counts in my place. And I don't have to die anymore. In verses 6 through 8. Jesus quotes from Genesis 1.27 and 2.24 to tell us that God intends for us to do marriage in the way that He designed marriage. Marriage is something God ordained as permanent and which He commands us to never undo. So Jesus concludes. You say, what's the point of all this? Verse 9. What God put together, don't let any man separate. Which is a continuous command from Jesus. Keep on not letting anyone separate what God has put together. This is an ongoing command from Christ. We must not contribute to the pulling apart of our marriage or of anyone else's marriage. Rather than separating, we should stay in war against our selfishness and love our spouse. As I was preparing this message, it occurred to me that the Bible commands no separation, but it does command ongoing not separation. We must strive. To be more united in our marriages, church, in every respect. And we must be a church that encourages people 
to strive for God's will, even when the world says to run at the first sign of trouble. Let, let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf this morning. If you're, if you're wanting to cultivate oneness in your marriage, then there's some things physically that God says we should do. Are we here, church? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's commanded. In fact, Paul says, if I'm reading him rightly, if you've got to choose by, between having time to pray in your marriage and having time to be together physically in your marriage, then be together physically. Cultivate the union. It's a command in Scripture. But there's some other things that threaten to rip us apart as husband and wife, aren't they? Like finances. I mean... If you've got student loans and you're going into marriage, okay. But don't spend $6 a day at Starbucks. Like, one of the number one reasons marriages fail is because of finances. And I know there's Dave Ramsey and all these gurus out there, but guys, it's not rocket science. Just don't spend more than you earn and you're going to be okay. It's simple addition and subtraction. You don't have to buy a house that has five bedrooms, three baths, and two-car garage when you're starting out. You can get something tiny and small, and you can put a down payment and avoid PMI altogether, and you can have less of a house payment than you would even pay rent, and you can build some equity, and you can put yourself on a solid foundation from the beginning. You don't have to live your life the way the world's telling you you have to live your life. And ladies, I know you like to shop, but just because you have a coupon for it doesn't mean you're saving money. I mean, let's be honest. If you weren't going to buy it until you saw the coupon, then you didn't save money. You spent money that you weren't planning to spend. And so it doesn't matter if you go to Kroger or to Target and Rewards or whatever, and it tells you you save $372 if you spent $400 that you weren't planning to spend. That's not savings. It's irresponsibility. And there are marriages all across this country that are suffering because husband and wife haven't simply sat down and had a conversation and gotten on the same page about how much they are earning and how they're going to spend it. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? Proverbs. Be wise with your money. Save your money. And there's a million other ways that we can talk about how marriage is something we can either contribute to our union with our wives or our husbands, or we can be contributing to their separation. I, in my premarital counseling sessions, there's a chapter book we go through that talks about the mission of marriage and how every marriage needs a mission that is bigger than the marriage itself. Your marriage is going to be a tumultuous ride if the purpose of your marriage is just to stay, on, stay together, hang on, and not fall apart. God has something bigger for your marriage than just that your marriage would not fall apart. And you know what that is? It's the Great Commission. It's the mission of God. It's contributing in His church. It's living for the sake of your neighbors who don't know Jesus yet. And when you have a Great Commission marriage, it frames everything else that you say and you do and you think. And when a husband and a wife are together on mission, not just to not fall apart, but to bring other people to know the Savior who put them together in the first place, it radically transforms and informs everything you do in marriage. There's nothing like having a mission greater than the mission of not falling apart to keep your marriage together. 
Y'all still here this morning? All right. I, I know I'm a little long this morning, but this is so important for our church family. You see, a key way that we become more like Christ and better understand His love for us is that we keep striving to love our spouse like He loved us. Because when we were far away, when we were distant, when we forgot to take out the trash, when we were lazy and rude and impatient and ornery and obnoxious, when we were clueless and we were late and we were lazy and selfish, when we were at war with Jesus, Jesus did not back down. He did not file for divorce. Instead, he pursued us with a relentless love that took him all the way to the cross. And a word to the men here today. Verse 7, Jesus tells us that we are to leave our mother and father and to cleave to our wives. There's nothing more frustrating in marriage counseling that I can conceive of than what I like to call mama boy syndrome. Guys, it is okay to be a mama's boy when you're a boy. But it is not okay to be a mama's boy when you're a married man. It's just not. You are supposed to leave your mother and leave your father and establish your home. You say, I'm not even supposed to honor mom and dad. No, of course you're supposed to honor your parents. But Jesus says here that a man's obligation to his wife surpasses even his obligation to his own parents. So if we're going to be Christ's church in the world, we've got to take marriage seriously. We've got to love our spouses sacrificially, unselfishly, and wholeheartedly. Here's what Keller says about marriage. Within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It's to look at another person, get a glimpse of what God is creating, and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to His throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. Marriage done well is a picture of the permanence of Christ's relationship with His church. We become one flesh. And it is a tool that God uses to expose our selfishness and make us more like Christ because we are committed to the idea that nothing will separate the marriage that we've entered into. Finally, we must remain faithfully committed to our spouse, especially when it's challenging. In verse 10, Jesus and the disciples get some time together in the house. The house has been a place of Jesus' special instruction for his disciples. And now the disciples have questions. Jesus, are you saying what we think you're saying? Do you remember over in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus talks about it? The disciples are all alarmed. They're basically saying... Who in their right mind would get married if you're going to hold us up to God's standard for marriage? The disciples are alarmed because Jesus is taking away or significantly reducing hope for another marriage after a divorce. He's saying your best option and what God expects for you is, is not to run but to stay and to fight. The simplest interpretation of Jesus' words in verse 11 and 12 is that to divorce one's mate and remarry another is to commit the sin of adultery. But there's a big question here, right, church? Like, is that really what he's saying? Many biblical scholars believe, you see the words in parentheses? That the words in parentheses are implied in what Jesus is saying. That divorce one's made without a biblical cause and to remarry is to commit the sin of adultery. So there's a variety of views about divorce and remarriage and I'm going to summarize some of those views here very quickly. And I'm going to warn you, I'm not going to tell you my view right now. You can come on Wednesday night. 
see you can come back. You can have a meal on Wednesday night. We can, and the reason for that is it, there needs to be some discussion for you to understand the layers of these different views. But here are the views. Divorce is never permitted for any reason. That's, that's what some believe is being said. Divorce is permitted for adultery only, but remarriage is not allowed. Divorce is permitted for adultery or the desertion of an unbelieving spouse, but remarriage is not permitted. Divorce is permitted for adultery or desertion of an unbelieving spouse, and remarriage to a believer is granted to the innocent party. This is, for the most part, my view, with some caveats that we'll talk about on Wednesday night. Those who believe the Bible allows for remarriage do so on the grounds of the exception clause in Matthew and also the logic that if God grants divorce to the innocent party, then by His grace, He also grants permission to remarry. And finally, divorce is permitted in the case where a divorce takes place before somebody knew Jesus, right? Because you don't expect the world to know about what God says about marriage or to care what God says about marriage because they're the world and they weren't walking with Jesus. So you say, well, Daniel, now I'm really confused and I'm thinking about all those views and I'm thinking about my situation. What am I supposed to do? Here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to the best of your ability, put that out of your mind for a second. And I want you to hear this. No matter where we land on the question of divorce and remarriage, here is what is not up for debate. Jesus wants the marriage that you're in to go the distance. And He especially wants marriages where there are two Christians involved to go the distance. But there's something else that's clear in Mark's Gospel. Something we must not miss. While Jesus did not die to excuse our sin or give us permission to take marriage lightly, He knew that many of us would, and yet He still died for you. Even those of us this morning who say, well, I've never been divorced and I'm fine, look at me. The reality is, if you're honest with yourself, even if your marriage has gone the distance for 5 years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, there have been times in your marriage when you've been guilty of contributing more to the separation of your marriage than to the union of your marriage. So whether you're divorced or not divorced, we all have some guilt in this area and yet we don't need to be filled up with guilt because Christ came and gave himself as a ransom for sinners. Are y'all with me? Christ did not divorce himself from the divorced and so neither should the church. Jesus has a place for divorced people to serve him where there is great repentance and faith in Christ then his grace abounds. So how do we respond as a church this morning? First, if there's anyone here that's in an unbiblical marriage because you left the previous spouse, then seek forgiveness for the sin of adultery and then work hard to glorify God and be a blessing with the person to whom you are now married. Second, Sam Storms is right when he says we should emphasize the value and dignity of marriage while eliminating the shame and stigma of the divorce. God has a place for you whether you're married once or divorced and remarried, he's got a place for you to labor in the kingdom of God. Because the only sin that will not be forgiven, we've already read about in Mark 3. What is it? It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not the sin of divorce. Third, we need to be honest about where we are in our marriage. Some of you this morning came to North Roanoke Baptist Church hoping that the pastor would tell you it's okay to abandon your marriage. Some of you came hoping that you would hear one shred of biblical evidence that would lead me to say, yeah, just go ahead and give up, bow out, 
take a pause. Don't worry about your marriage. I'm not going to say that to you because Christ did not say that to me. The priority for the Christian when it comes to a troubled marriage is to show the world a redeeming love that is greater and deeper and more powerful than the greatest offense. So some of you are seated next to your husband or next to your wife, and the reality is behind closed doors, your home is a wreck. And what I want to challenge you to do as we close this morning is to be the first who would stand up in your marriage and say, I'm going to die to myself no matter how hard it is, no matter what it takes. And I'm going to show the love of Christ to my spouse, even if I'm the only one who's doing it. And I'm going to trust that God is going to honor my obedience. And in time, he's going to bring wholeness and health and wellness to my marriage. Fourth, we've got to remember that marriage is not primarily about our personal happiness, but our personal holiness. He's trying to make you more like Jesus. And finally, and I want to close with this one. There's more to be said, but I'll close with this one. We've got to teach and model what the Bible says about marriage in our homes. Guys, we've got to speak positively about marriage and about our wives. It's not okay to call your wife the wife. It's not okay to call your wife the old ball and chain. We should be different than the world when it comes to how we think about, speak about, cultivate, and value marriage. And while it only takes one generation to get it wrong, it really only takes one more generation to get it back to right. And my hope for you students is that no matter what you've seen from Christians who've gone before you, that every single one of you, if you get married, if God calls you to get married, and some of you, He might call you to singleness, because He says in 1 Corinthians 7, for some of you, it's better to be single, so you can be more free to pursue the mission of God around the world. But for those of you that God calls to get married, my prayer is that every single one of you would go the distance till death do you part. And that you would be the generation that helps North Roanoke Baptist Church be the church in the valley where people say they value good and godly marriage there. That is my prayer for you. North Roanoke Baptist Church, no matter where you've been, what you've seen, what you've done, there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And at the cross of Calvary, no matter what thoughts or attitudes or behaviors or past that you bring to this place, the opportunity and the question is, what will you do with what you know now? And I want to ask every single wife and husband who's here today to say, I will contribute in my marriage. I will be responsible in my marriage to contributing to the unity of our marriage rather than to its separation. So help me, God. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. And you pursued us with a never-stopping, never-ending, relentless love. God, there's nothing that stood in your way, even the cross of Calvary, that prevented you from coming after your church. And so I pray, God, in Jesus' name, for the marriages that are here, that are struggling, that are on the verge of failing, God, that you would bring brokenness and healing this morning. For the sake of the name of Jesus who brings that healing in marriages and in churches and in people's lives. Lord, we bless you this day and we ask that you would give us the courage to respond as you would have us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.